The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Welcome to the China and Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network with SubChina. I'm Kubis van Staden. Today, Eric is traveling, so, so I'm flying solo. This week, we saw a very interesting kind of development in the Horn of Africa, where China was, was hosting a peace and development conference with a set of regional governments. And I'm delighted to discuss that with Ali Vajee, um, who's joining me from Gothenburg in Sweden. Ali is a non-resident senior advisor to the U.S. Institute of Peace, where he has in the past focused on Ethiopia and Sudan, among other regions. Ali, welcome. Thank you very much, Kubas, for having me. Just to give a little bit more background to the conference, it happened this week and it was it was convened by Xue Bing, China's special envoy to the Horn of Africa region. And it pulled in senior ministers and senior government officials from Ethiopia, Kenya, Sudan, South Sudan, Somalia, Uganda, and Djibouti. And they, they put out a kind of a, a quite a kind of comprehensive joint statement, like a 12-point joint statement at the end of at the end of the conference. So before we get into those points, I just wanted to ask you, what did you make of this conference? Like what was what was your impression of it? I thought it was a very interesting timing to have a conference like this. There are elections coming up in Kenya in August. There's obviously the ongoing war in Ethiopia. Sudan is in its own turmoil. And so China's sort of raising of itself as a mediator, intervener of some kind, um, without really having a lot of specifics about what that might mean in these different country contexts. Uh, Somalia, to add to the picture, uh, experiencing this uh, very tremendous drought is also affecting eastern Ethiopia and Djibouti. So the timing is interesting because there are plenty of crises in the region, but the solution and sort of the point of China's engagement much less clear. Yeah, that struck me as well. You know, kind of at the beginning of the conference, Xue Bing said that China would be willing to act as a mediator to some of the some of the kind of conflicts in the region, and then. During the conference on the, on the second day, there was this um, this kind of interesting comment coming out saying that no one had actually touched on that that potential for mediation, and that the the issue didn't come up. What did you make of this offer of mediation, and uh, and where does the what what does the response tell us? It's interesting that the rhetoric of mediation and the reality of mediation are so different, and when this conference was first announced or earlier on when it was being talked about. I think the the Chinese uh, special representative was making the point that China can offer something different in terms of its mediation style or its mediation capacity or its mediation interests. And as you say, in reality, that wasn't something discussed at all. I think because not only is China not really clear about what it can contribute, but the regional states aren't necessarily interested in another external mediator. Um, for mediation to, to work, you actually need more than one party to be party to it. And in most of the cases in the Horn of Africa, these are not 
interstate disputes. I mean, there are, of course, issues between Ethiopia and Sudan, Ethiopia and Eritrea, uh, and so on. But most of the most pressing disputes are internal. And that, of course, presents a dilemma for China uh, with the position of non-interference and respect for sovereignty and so on still being there. And what does mediation mean in that sort of context or if it's constrained by those principles? And secondly, the governments, because there were the governments who were attending this conference and not uh, all political actors relevant in the region, aren't necessarily that interested in having uh, external intervention. And certainly they've resisted it when it's come from other countries, uh, whether or other organizations, whether the African Union or whether the Gulf countries or whether the US, to be involved in their, as they see them, internal disputes. So mediation, while sounding like a non-threatening and positive offer, and I think that's why, in part, it was chosen as the framing for a conference like this, isn't actually necessarily what either the Chinese or the regional countries are that interested in. So on the Chinese side, what do you think they were hoping to gain from convening this conference? You know, Cobus, this conference reminds me a great deal of a conference that was hosted in Khartoum a couple of years ago, where the foreign minister of China, Wang Yi, was visiting the region at the time. He'd just been in Kenya, and then he had to stop in in Khartoum. And the Chinese government had the idea, at the time the mediation of the South Sudan conflict was ongoing in Ethiopia and Addis Ababa, the Chinese government had the idea to ask the parties to that conflict to come to Khartoum to meet with the foreign minister, uh, to engage in a conference for a day to address the intractable issues. And at that time, the mediation, the regionally led mediation was not making a great deal of progress. So what actually resulted from this, this episode has been characterized by scholars subsequently as somehow a, a breakthrough moment or innovation and, or something testing the the model of, uh, of conflict resolution. But in practice, it really achieved very little. The rhetorical commitments were more or less what had already been discussed many times in the um, Addis talks. And for China, it was more of an opportunity just to say, look, we're interested in these kinds of issues and we have convening power. I think this is similar. This is an event which is different in that it's not focused on a single conflict or a single issue. Uh, as you pointed out, the statement makes reference to a wide number of issues, although it's difficult to, to know how in-depth any of those discussions really were. But I think it's really a symbolic more than a practical measure. It shows that China does have convening power, and we've seen that happen primarily in China with invitations to uh, heads of state to, or heads of government to, to go there for various conferences over the years. But the convening in Africa itself has been much more limited, with this Khartoum example being one, and now this Addis conference being uh, a second uh, instance. I think that's a big part of it. It sets um, a precedent to do it again. So if in a year's time or two years' time or three years' time, whatever, uh, the then special representative, whomever it might be, whether the present one or somebody else, says, yes, we'd like to have a second um, installment of this conference, the precedent is established. The idea that there is a forum 
for these kinds of engagements is uh, is certainly a big part of it. The practical aspect, I think a lot of what is most important about politics is what goes on between and outside of the formal meetings and the formal summits and so on. And I'm not sure that any of the Chinese embassies, let's say, in the region have received any special or further explicit instructions telling them as a follow-up to this conference, you are supposed to do this or that. Maybe they have, but uh, I haven't seen, I don't see at this moment um, a more joined up systematic approach to to these things. And so um, I think the conference for the moment stands on its own as a sort of intervention, but not necessarily one with very clear and obvious impacts. Yeah, that's the 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 view I got as well. And it, it made me wonder in the first place, you know, kind of how it connects to earlier attempts to to mediate in the region, for example, in South Sudan, you know, the mid um, 2010s, whether you think all of this is amounting to some kind of like track record in, in starting to, to intervene in this kind of media, mediation way, whether these kind of like isolated kind of attempts to make peace or to bring these parties together is starting to, to amount to some kind of track record for China in the region? Yeah, I, I differ a little bit with the characterizations that have been offered by a number of people about whether China was actually a mediator in the South Sudan conflict. I think it presented itself as such, but in reality, it wasn't actually mediating. It was supporting the wider regional mediation But I think you have to see these developments as indeed part of a a pattern because not only was there this Chinese support to the mediation in South Sudan, but there was also uh, then uh, Chinese peacekeepers in the UN mission, Chinese funding for implementation of the agreement, uh, Chinese follow-up with uh, the other uh, international actors when things um, weren't going so well. But then you can see in the second iteration of the IGAD, the regional organization-led mediation process for South Sudan, which happened from uh, 2017, 2018 onwards, China playing a much lesser role, um, possibly because they understood it was uh, much messier and with very little upside to being involved. Convening a conference, having a couple of days of meetings with foreign ministers or heads of state, heads of government, is much easier. You can really stick to the level of platitudes. You don't really get your hands dirty, but generally it's positive. And of course, because of the framing of the event and sort of the implied criticism of other actors, particularly Western actors, for how they have um, perceived and portrayed and involved themselves, then it becomes very much... um, a free self-promotion activity for China. But like I said, I think what would be most important to understand is what do the Chinese see as the follow-up to this? Holding a conference is relatively easy. It's relatively straightforward. I mean, there's obviously the practicalities and logistics to it, but in terms of a concrete, defined event, uh, it's fairly straightforward. Sustaining engagement and having um, a much more coherent and deeper strategy that's much more difficult 
Yeah, completely. The appointment of Shui Bing as a special special envoy earlier this year, since since then we've seen the appointment of, of, of David Satterfield as one, as, as, as a U.S. special envoy to the region. He's now been replaced by Mike Hammer, the former U.S. ambassador to the DRC. And this week we also saw the appointment of Sarah Montgomery as, as the U.K.'s um, special envoy to the Horn of Africa and the Red Sea region. So I was wondering what you make of all of these special envoys. And like, like having, you know, kind of w- w- what should we read from the appointment of all of, you know, kind of, the, this, kind of the, all of these repeated appointments to this specific region? What stands out to me is that all of the people appointed are diplomats or former diplomats, and they don't necessarily come with political backing. And so the role and the function of a special envoy has changed over time in terms of whether it is a true indication of the significance that the appointing government takes for this. And I think once these roles become established, it becomes much more routinized to then just replace uh, whoever leaves the post with somebody else. Clearly, there are concerns in Washington, in London, in Beijing, um, about the region and its stability and greater appreciation of the cross-Red Sea relations with states in the Middle East and in the Gulf region in particular and their engagement and involvement in um, in the region. But just to take, for example, President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia is not, as far as we can see, very much focused on what's going on in the Horn of Africa. So while there is appreciation of Red Sea issues and concerns at one level, uh, at a very working level in a way, is that something which is mirrored higher up the chain? Um, Rarely. And so with the problems in Sudan, in Ethiopia, in Somalia becoming uh, protracted or already protracted going on for years and years and years and years, it's hard to sustain a high-level interest. And so the argument that greater connections and greater understanding of different regions and how they intersect being needed is certainly growing, and that's certainly there more so than was present um, a couple of years ago even. But still, you can see that in practice, it becomes very narrowly focused on the emergent crisis of the moment. And I think um, as far as the Chinese envoy as well, there are precedents to follow in terms of his predecessors, in terms of how active they were on particular files, Um, whether he casts a different path. Again, um, there's not much to indicate that would be the case at the moment. So in, in terms of these major powers' broad approaches to the region, I was I was struck when Sarah Montgomery was, was announced, Vicky Ford, the, the UK's Minister for Africa, 
characterize her engagement with the region as dealing with complicated and high-level ties with the Middle East and then dealing with humanitarian disasters in, in the Horn of Africa. And it struck me that some of the discourse coming out of China blurs these issues in, in, in two ways. In the first place, they tend to not make such a strong distinction between um, East Africa and West Asia. You know, they, they frequently look at, they, uh, we've seen them kind of look at, at the two regions together. And then also, they always emphasize a combination of, of peacekeeping and economic engagement rather than one in the one region and one in the other. So I was wondering if you th- if you think that that kind of contrasting is fair in the first place and, you know, kind of how you see the, China's approach to the region compared to like the UK or the US's approach? Well, I think a lot depends on the, the personalities involved in the background. I mean, if you take someone like Sarah Montgomery, she spent a large part of her career working for the former Department for International Development, the UK's development agency, which has since been folded into the, the foreign office. And she was part of DFID in Afghanistan, in Ukraine, in Iraq. So I'm sure she comes with a very strong understanding and a very strong orientation towards the humanitarian uh, sector. Um, and obviously, this is a very large part of the expenditure of a country like the UK, despite uh, its cuts to foreign assistance, a large part of the expenditure still goes into humanitarian relief. And with the with the drought and with the increasing um, precariousness of the Horn of Africa, you can imagine that will remain t- uh, a major issue. What's unclear, as you say, Cobus, is how this really links up with the economic side of things, because part of the crisis in a country like Sudan is not only one of uh, humanitarian stress, but also economic management and mismanagement. And that's a point of interest for the uh, Middle East, the West Asia uh, countries, because, of course, they are economically implicated in countries in in the Horn. But at the same time, what is their ability to really pursue economic reform or their desire to push economic reform in other countries when they themselves are often characterized by patrimonial or neo-patrimonial systems. Uh, So there's a tension there, and that's always difficult for, I think, uh, Western actors to, to really bridge that sort of gap. And I think China is sort of in the middle of this, because if you look at China's assistance to the region, Yes, there's a humanitarian component, but it's by no means the largest aspect of the Chinese portfolio as compared to what uh, the US or the UK or the EU contributes. So for China, the financial priorities are elsewhere, whether uh, more on development um, or indeed on uh, economic uh, engagement uh, from both state and private sector companies. And so I think how it mashes up for China is slightly different because on one hand, the Chinese envoy is not there as a, as a trade promoter necessarily, although, of course, uh, people do tend to hold the Chinese government responsible for the actions or inactions of their state-owned uh, enterprises, whether that's uh, fair or not. Um, at the other, on the other hand, uh, a Chinese envoy is very much aware of the influence and importance of using 
development funds of uh, central planning for economic development, infrastructure developments, and so on, as part of his tool and his country's tools to motivate and pursue the sorts of developments that they're interested in. So there's a tension there as well. And I think that makes it slightly different for a Chinese envoy uh, vis-a-vis a Western one. If we hone in on Ethiopia for, for the moment, over the 2010s, we saw Ethiopia emerging as this very interesting kind of experiment almost in, in, in Chinese investing with a lot of investing going in, into the garment sector. And that actually in some cases being quite successful with Chinese investments in, in, in shoe assembly, for example, and so on, starting to then develop kind of offshoring opportunities for other producers as well with, with you know, brands like H&M and so on starting to produce in Ethiopia. And that was also facilitated by Chinese rail lines to the ports, to Djibouti particularly. It all looked like you know, a moment when this kind of Chinese focus on low-wage employment and kind of the offshoring of, of some kind of very in, labor-intensive Chinese industries to places like Ethiopia were going to start to kick off and you know, kind of was going to start facilitating Ethiopian development and trade with Europe, for example. Since then, obviously, the the, the Tigray war has, has, has really kind of thrown that up in the air. And I was wondering what you, like where the kind of economic side of China's engagement with, with Ethiopia stands now? Yes, this is, a, this is a good question. I think we can divide it into a number of considerations. So I think first the offshoring and the investment and the lower labor costs that a country like Ethiopia in particular with a large labor force offers is still attractive to Chinese investment in some ways. But there's also a question of the enabling environment. And although, let's say, the Tigray War hasn't necessarily directly affected all the um, specific industries that China has invested in, the overall environment economically in Ethiopia has deteriorated significantly over the course of the war. Uh, depreciation of the currency has made um, has been significant, and in some sense, that actually makes it a more attractive place for investment because things are cheaper. But on the other hand, uh, it has led to a lot of problems in terms of inflation, in terms of labor costs increasing in terms of instability with uh, key infrastructure, power provision, um, delivery of services, and so on. So I think any investing company or country is looking for an environment where these things are relatively stable and where these things can be counted on uh, for years to come. And so the more volatility there is, in the enabling environment, the less enabling it actually is. Uh, I think the other aspect, of course, is that the reputational dimension of Ethiopia in those export markets, whether in Europe or in the US or elsewhere, has, of course, taken a serious hit. There have been certain restrictions imposed. And so if you are uh, a Chinese company looking to invest in textiles, for example, or shoes, as you mentioned, then if your ultimate destination is to sell those products into uh, a European or an American market, 
and you can't do that because, or it's much more difficult to do so, or there are more tariffs because of restrictions that have come in place as a result of the political environment, then obviously that also makes things more complicated. But I think on the other hand, uh, China's interested in Ethiopia in the long haul. There's been a massive expansion uh, since uh, the early 2000s, over the last 20 years. Um, the trade has really, really um, risen a great deal. And just to look at other sectors, non-low-cost sectors like aviation, for example, um, Ethiopia-China relations in aviation have grown hugely and have been one of the area's most resilient even despite the COVID uh, pandemic generally hitting global aviation. So there are other areas too. And so if you're looking at Ethiopia from a long-term point of view, um, then you might say, well, yes, there's this war now, but it won't go on for 20 years, or this at least is your planning assumption. And yet in 20 years' time, Ethiopia will remain um, a huge market, a growing market, one where uh, labor costs remain low because of population growth and so on. And so it is still a place to consider investing with a long-term horizon. So I think these things are intention, the, the temporality of things, uh, the short-term horizon versus the, the longer-term perspective as well. Mm. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's very interesting. Another kind of key, you know, country in the region is is Somalia, and we've seen interesting developments in 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 relation to Somalia and and the it's it's re it's sub-region Somaliland that's, that's interested in secession. So we've seen earlier this year, we saw a form of bonding between Chinese officials and Somalian officials over this issue, even as Somaliland leaders went to Washington and, you know, and met quite a group of kind of high-level representatives in, in D.C. And, and seemed to kind of strengthen this kind of message of not only, you know, kind of not only Somaliland independence, but uh, Somaliland independence as a way to counter China's influence in the region and in a way to to boost Taiwan's influence in the region. So I was wondering what you make of Somalia in, in, in the context of this of this conference and, you know, in this kind of bigger geopolitical context. Well, to start with, Somali land before we come to uh, Somali uh, itself in the, in the context of the conference. I think Somali land has been very astute in using the China issue and using the current fear of China um, in Washington as an effective talking point. And obviously, the Somalilanders would have, if you go back a few years, would have liked to have had a very positive relationship with China. And I think at some point contemplated that that would be possible, but uh, in part because of how uh, China's representatives conducted themselves in Somaliland and how uh, the president was aggrieved by that, um, more or less pushed uh, Somaliland into the arms of Taiwan. So there's nothing ideological uh, from a Somaliland position about being pro-Beijing or being pro-Taiwan, really. But it's much more about what's in it for their interests, which, as you said, are very much centered on this idea that they are a functioning independent entity and they have nothing to do or want to have nothing to do with the rest of Somalia. In the context of the conference, of course, uh, it's always very difficult to 
involve um, non-state as would be considered or classified for this sort of event actors. But the, the reality is that the Somali state has very little effective presence even outside of Mogadishu, the capital, in the rest of southern Somalia, let alone in Somaliland itself. So the government, even though it's changed and there's been a new president elected recently, uh, still has a lot to do in terms of its own internal cohesion and management and performing even in a limited area where it has control. And I think that whenever there is a statement made uh, from Mogadishu or indeed uh, about Somaliland from the Somali perspective, it's much more one of rhetorical positions than anything it can achieve uh, realistically. And so this would be an example where for China, if you were really interested in uh, mediation, you'd say, well, how do we get Somalia and Somaliland to talk to each other? And this is um, an area where there have been talks over the years. There has been some sort of uh, question about how to have some amicable relationship, even if it may not uh, meet what Somaliland is asking for, but uh, neither meet what uh, Somalia has been asked for. But that's the that's the that's the crux of mediation, and the, that's the crux of of negotiation is a is a is a middle position, uh, and and whether that is something that uh, both parties can live with. So I don't think that was something that. Um, China wanted to broach. I don't think it's something that the Somalis wanted to, to broach either. Uh, but they're there. They're represented as a as a member of the of the region. They're present in this meeting. Uh, but the less said about uh, these internal difficulties and what they might mean for uh, the actual status of peace in the region is uh, is better left unsaid. <laughs> Yes, indeed. So winding down our conversation, I realize that people tend to not want to make predictions, and particularly not want to make predictions about a, a, a complicated and, and volatile area like the Horn of Africa. But, you know, kind of we, we started off the conversation with talking about the kind of track record that, that China is setting through this conference. If we flash forward a year or three or four, do you expect to see more of these kinds of engagements, either in this region or maybe in other regions in Africa? Or will it be a, a kind of a situation that we've seen so far where they kind of pop up and then disappear under the surface and then pop up again, you know, you know, with no context a few years later? I'll, I'll be bold and I'll make a couple of predictions. I'll say that <laughs> there will be another Horn of Africa conference of some kind. I don't want to commit to saying it will happen next year, but let's say if we're talking in a three to five year time frame, I'm fairly sure there'll be another uh, Horn of Africa China meeting because, as I said at the outset, part of doing this is to say we can do this, we do have convening power, we can set the precedent. And I think the difference with this meeting compared to the one we discussed in Khartoum is that there is no specific agenda. You can always have, there will always be issues of some kind in the region and there will always be some uh, matter that will interest uh, China uh, that could form the basis of a, of a bilateral or multilateral discussion. So, you know, as long as China is continuing to appoint a special envoy, um, then I'm sure there'll be further conferences in the region. I think the more 
difficult question is whether, as you say, this is something to expand to other parts of the continent, whether, let's say, Western Africa or Central Africa or Southern Africa. I think the challenges in doing so are not inconsiderable. In the West, for example, you're talking about a lot more states to convene uh, and uh, a lot more effective regional organization, uh, which has its own convening power. And I think the same goes for for Southern Africa. So, you know, the, the Horn is somewhat unique in that it has a regional organization or several regional organizations, but not only do they compete with each other, but they're also in various states of disarray the region that is perhaps most comparable in that respect is is Central Africa, but um, there are other challenges, I think, to convening something in, in, in that region. But I think China will be looking and has learned that having the one-off, very focused, specific issue tag-ons to a foreign minister's visit aren't necessarily the way to go. And having a meeting like this is both low cost, uh, low commitment in terms of ongoing challenges, uh, but relatively easy to to do and relatively positive in terms of how it's portrayed. So I think we can be pretty sure that there'll be at least one more meeting of this kind in the region, uh, but maybe um, less certain about other regions of the continent. Ali Verji is the non-resident senior advisor to the U.S. Institute of Peace. Ali, it's been amazing to speak with you. Thank you so much. It's really broadened my, my understanding of the situation. If people want to follow what you're writing and reading and what you're working on, are you on social media? I am on Twitter, and it's just my, my name. So Ali Verji, at Ali Verji. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining us. It's fantastic to speak with you. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at ProjetAfriqueChine.com and AfriqueChine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. Music